I'm David Bank, and from Impact Alpha, this is an Agents of Impact podcast. In the old days, we used to filter out tobacco and guns or something from the stock market investment. But the best investments are where the impact is inherent to the product itself. And affordable housing is a very clear one where your positive impact is inherent in the very nature of the product. That's Jonathan Rose, founder and president of the real estate development company that bears his name. We talked about building affordable, green housing. Let's jump right into our conversation. I've wanted to have this conversation for such a long time, Jonathan. You're as you know, you're a legend uh, in in the field, and um, but more than you know, just the past is some of the things you're doing now and kind of pushing the boundaries on where both um, sustainable and green kind of housing is, but also um, obviously very important, you know, affordable and socially supportive housing as well. So I want you to solve for us not only the carbon problem but also the housing problem in this country. Can you do that? That's my goal. I actually do it all. Tell us, I mean, I think you were founded the company back in 1989. Impact investing was not a term yet, yet you had an inkling. So maybe tell us the origin myth. So it's something, I, the, the world of impact investing and the bringing together of real estate with social justice and environmental goals was something I literally as a young child wanted to do. I don't know. It's just a calling that I was born with. And my family was in the real estate business. I was working in a family real estate business and also volunteering in the Lower East Side, working on a lot of supportive housing, drug treatment centers, uh, building a lot of that infrastructure. And in 1987, I joined something called the Social Venture Network, which was an amazing group. And it had people like Ben and Jerry of Ben and Jerry's Ice Cream, and Anita and Gordon Roddick of The Body Shop, and John Mackey, who at the time had one whole food store. And I felt if these people could be doing this in what were essentially consumer products, there had to be a way to create a mission-focused company and something as essential to the world as housing. And so in 1989, I left my family business and started a two-person company with a mission to be a for-profit that brought together uh, affordable mixed-income housing, community redevelopment, environmental justice, and social justice. How did the family react to that? Uh, They were very happy because... uh, I don't want to say they were happy to get rid of me, but they knew that I had different objectives than they did, and uh, this took a lot of took a lot of pressure off them. There, the, the family business continues. It's run by a cousin. It's an excellent business. Um, it's very different than what I do. And from the get go, there were these twin missions, and you were always going to be delivering, um, you know, re- returns to investors. It was always a for profit uh, sort of enterprise, but was the ability to put those things together and achieve the social and environmental missions and the and the financial returns, was that something that you were able to do initially, or is that something you've only been able to perfect later? So it's something that we've been continually evolving. So from our very first project, our very first project um, as a large redevelopment in Denver, Colorado of an old uh, uh, department store, I brought in the Rocky Mountain Institute to help make it green. Uh, in 1990, so the green uh, building was from the very beginning of our work, and it included affordable housing. It was mixed income, mixed use, transitory development, a historic renovation, and to make it financially successful, it took 23 sources of financing. And so from the very beginning, these roots of 
complex public-private partnerships that had financial success, but also social and environmental success. All these were in, in the DNA of the company. And But for just in, in 1990, there was no such thing as LEED. There were no enterprise green communities. We didn't have ways to actually measure the greenness of our effects. And, and if you went to a lumber supplier then and said, I wanted wood that was environmentally re, uh, responsibly harvested, they'd look at you like you're nuts because we didn't have chain of title. There were so many things we didn't have back then. So the ability to carry out the work that we are now doing has, uh, has evolved uh, and, and made it easier and easier. It seems, sounds like, you know, from all, all the components are frankly not that different now than they were then in terms of transit-oriented development and, and, and social support services. But on the other hand, I think you can possibly get, you know, in a sense, get paid for them or at least realize some of the benefits of those things in a way now that maybe wasn't true before. And a green apartment complex is, is not only uh, emits less, it's more comfortable to live in and it's a better, it's a better environment and you get, you can get. I don't know, higher occupancy rates or, or, or that, all that, right? Yes. So what was interesting is when I began, uh, the environmental world and the social justice world were actually in, in many ways in opposition. And so the, uh, the affordable housing community, back then we built about 100,000 new units of affordable housing a year. Today we only build 50,000, but they would say that they considered my interest in the environment an indulgence because it wasn't just purely about low-income people, they thought. And uh, their perception was for every 1% that it would cost more, that would mean 1% fewer housing units built. And they said to me, if the, if making a building green costs 1% more, there will be a 1,000 homeless people on the street and it's your fault. And so when I began, I had a, this amazing discipline, which is I had to b- bring in green, affordable, mixed-income housing projects in, on the same budget as any other project because no one was going to allocate additional money for these projects. And that turned out to be a very, very good discipline that has also continued through our work. Um, so, for example, today, uh, when we buy existing affordable housing to try preserve its affordability and make it green, we'll invest equity in anything that has a five-year payback or better. That's a 20% return. Actually, non-correlate is a fantastic return. So that, that, that worldview that came out of those early years, I think, uh, was actually a good one for us to grow up in. Well, let's, let's hold green off for a second. Tell us about affordable housing, because that also, um, I, I know there, and I know there's different uh, categories of affordable right. housing, and, and, but, but it's also underappreciated as, um, as an asset class, I think, um, in that um, it's very stable. Um, retention rates are, are are strong, and and people can get good returns out of building affordable housing. Yet, yet a lot of developers go upscale to luxury and and whatnot. Um, how do you how do you sort of uh, surf all of those uh, dynamics? Right. So first of all, there's a enormous supply demand mismatch. There are 20 million families in America today that spend more than 50 percent of their income on housing, and this is a global phenomenon. Now, when we talk to colleagues all over the world. Uh, there is a lack of affordable housing in thriving cities. Um, we the definition is that uh, affordable housing that people should spend thirty percent of their income on housing, and we define the affordability uh, as as for families earning sixty percent or less of an area median income. Although in high cost cities such as New York and San Francisco, you may see programs that 
reach up to say 130% of area median income. But it's this combination of area median income and percentage of income that defines affordability in the United States. And uh, today there are only five or six million units of affordable housing. And as I said, we, we need another 20 million. Uh, so there's this great supply demand mismatch, which means that there are long lines and waiting lists. So the properties are always filled um, because the rents are so low below market. They have very, very consistent cash flows and many positive characteristics. Uh, increasingly, we're seeing the investor world turn towards affordable housing as, as investors look for more and more ESG investments. You think of ESG, the best ESG investments are ones or impact investments are ones in which the impact is not a, an add-on. It's not an additional, either it's not an add-on, nor is it a filter. Like in the old days, we used to filter out tobacco and guns or something from a stock market investment. But the best investments are where the impact is inherent to the product itself. And affordable housing is a very clear one where your positive impact is inherent in the very nature of the product. And some of these are have subsidies in various ways, and some of them are are, are naturally occurring or, or right. unsubsidized. Um, and do you play in both of those? Uh... We do. So typically, uh, about we we're now completing uh, the investment of our fifth affordable housing preservation fund, and typically about seventy percent of those have something called a project based Section Eight contract, which is a twenty year federal contract, which pays a big chunk of the income. The residents pay. 30% of their income is rent, and the federal government pays the difference between that and what's considered a market rent. And the about 15% are something called low-income housing tax credit projects, in which the subsidies in the paying for the building of the project, but not on the operating side. And about 15% of ours are mixed-income projects. Um, we think mixed-income communities make a lot of social sense. Um, so it, it's a mixture of rent subsidy and 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 not. So there's a, some kind of public, shall we call it catalytic capital involved that helps make um, affordable housing affordable. And that also puts, um, I think, restrictions on what you can charge. But exactly. within all of that, you're able to make these projects pencil out for, for yourselves and your investors. Yes. And then we actually, um, because we see the supply of affordable housing being lost, we like to increase the supply or, and so, or at least preserve it. So, for example, our most recent fund bought a building in California called Posse Campo Apartments. It was um, uh, the building that was had one in one year all its rent restrictions were going to go away, and it could have been marked up to market. So, uh, we bought this, put a twenty-year uh, restriction on it. In exchange, we extended the Section Eight contract for twenty years, so we have this wonderful guaranteed income. We also negotiated with the local community, got a 20-year tax abatement, so our expenses are well controlled. Um, and we measure this in what we call unit years preserved. So that building was 94 units, multiply it by 20 years, and about 1,800 unit years preserved uh, happened. And our typical funds will have hundreds of thousands of unit years preserved in them. Um, so we think we're both improving the supply of affordable housing or preserving it, certainly, and at the same time, creating the economic structures that give us and our investors very good returns. And if 
it is possible to do the, to square that circle as you as you say um how come there's still a gap of 20 million housing units why aren't isn't there more activity to fill that gap because that gap is squared by the use of subsidies it's not a pure market activity and uh we simply need more of them uh the Biden administration's recent bill um has proposed more what's interesting is we're seeing Providing affordable housing through the private market is, has tremendous bipartisan support in, in Washington. Republicans love the privatization of any social service, so they, they like having people like me, um, both sides like having firms like ours uh, in the affordable housing business. The, uh, but also lots of cities and states are uh, increasingly adding more and more resources for the development of new affordable housing and preservation because it's such a large issue. So the supply is beginning to increase. It won't get to 20 million, but it, we're, we're inching our way towards it. Okay, now go the next step, which is you make these house, this, this housing not only affordable, but you make it green and also socially positive for the residents in various ways and make that all pay out. So tell us how that, how that equation works. Got it. So on the resident side, um, let's begin with this issue about America's a land of opportunity. And that's really in our founding myth uh, that opportunity was primarily for white males in the beginning, but over time we've distributed that more broadly. Um, but it's not well distributed by zip code. And so there are zip codes in America where people will live an average of 60 years and literally a mile away where people may live 80 years. There are people, zip codes where 95% of the kids go to college and zip codes where 0% of the kids go to college. So Typically, the projects that we are developing in the communities where we're developing or where we're buying existing buildings, they are not what are called communities of opportunity. Their statistics are not that great. Our goal is to make each project a mini community of opportunity. So how can we extend, how can we bring health, well-being, educational, job training, better credit, all those things to our residents? We call that our community of opportunity program. We have a standardized package that we bring. It's all done. So when we either develop a project or buy a project through one of our funds, we add a, a, a computer room, a, a library, community room, and a health exam room, a community garden, a whole series of uh, a physical infrastructure. And then we partner with local not-for-profits, so YMCAs and Boys and Girls Clubs, to bring in after-school programs with a uh, uh, local healthcare providers to bring on-site healthcare, et cetera. And we very consciously are doing all of these to try and make our properties zip codes of opportunities for the residents. And we've been increasingly improving in how we measure this, to measure the outcomes of this, and to advance not only to do this physically, but through things like telemedicine, et cetera. Is that a cost to you or is that a benefit just in pure economic terms? Is that Does that pay for itself? In pure economic terms, it is a cost. And it's one that we just, we just believe is essential. Um, we just we believe it's the, it's the right thing to do. And one of the things we're advocating for, so remember the, the, the service, so the physical cost is ours to make the facilities. And we're paying for one social service coordinator who's coordinating all this. So the real programmatic cost is being borne by government agencies and the not-for-profits that we partner with. And for them, it's actually much more effective if I can say we'll deliver 200 patients for you to come and see, then seeing providing health services on site for us becomes very cost effective for the health 
companies. Uh, we've also just finished a study that shows through our telemedicine program, it appears that we have um, reduced hospital emergency room admissions in the neighborhood hospital by more than half. So one of our goals now is to collect data on this, to be able to make the case so that we can begin to, to share in some of the savings that we know are creating. These are savings that in old economics you would call externalities. They happen to be positive externalities instead of negative ones. Um, positive externalities wanted. is our favorite topic here at Impact Alpha. So um, hats off to you on that. And, and the other positive externalities that also have a, a, both a cost but a benefit are, is, the, is the green is the green right. the green advantages and housing is a huge contributor and, and buildings in general a huge contributor to greenhouse gases, um, but do you make that part pay? Yes, so the green part absolutely pays. So when we talk about green, we're talking about uh, essentially three things: reducing energy use and the source of energy to make it greener, so that we're reducing climate impact, reducing water use. And the third thing is reducing the toxicity of, you know, modern buildings have a lot of toxicity in the glues and paints and caulks and stuff and trying to make as non-toxic an environment as possible. And uh, the non-toxic side is, is, is not only cost-free, but we, because of our scale now, we're a large enough company, we competitively bid all of our building materials and we're bidding them on cost, on durability, on aesthetics, but also on greenness. And we've actually are buying those key materials, the paints and flooring, et cetera, at uh, very good prices because uh, that, and they're also very green. On the water side, uh, water is now the fastest growing utility cost and is a big chunk of our budgets. And um, so water savings is great for the environment and it's great for uh, you know, more drought prone communities like Southern California, but it's just also pure payback. I mean, we literally are saving in some projects once we install leak monitoring and really water attention paying, we can be saving tens of thousands of dollars a quarter. I mean, it's, you know, $70,000 a year, $120,000 a year in water bills. It's quite amazing. And then on the energy side, We'll invest in anything that has a five-year payback or better. We should just be putting investor equity into that because that's a pure 20% non-correlated return. But And that's very simple things like LED lights and better insulation and variable speed motors and pumps and sometimes solar. But, but in most of the communities where we're working, there's also something like a green bank that will lend us at a couple percent interest rate, 20 or 30-year amortization uh, to go deeper. So... Uh, on the energy side, it's uh, it's a complete economic win-win. And has the sort of um, goalpost uh, or the bar raised been raised over in recent years? So things that, you know, some of the low-hanging fruit, like you said, insulation yeah. and things may have been done, but now there's a, a, a new frontier of either appliances or, or innovations that could happen and, and the projects have to get better and better to uh, certainly to get noticed as, as, as lead platinum or whatever the case may be, right? Yes. So the, the goalpost now is climate neutrality. And it's complicated because we can do that in our new buildings. We're making our new buildings essentially all electric. And once you're all electric, you can buy green electrons and you can be climate neutral. But the difficulty is in, in our activity, in our fund activity, which is buying the existing buildings. And some of them are easier to convert and some of them are harder to convert um, to all electric. But 
but that's really the key. And the technology to be able to do that is consistently improving. Tell us about, you have a recent project that you were that you were telling me about before the call uh, that you were proud of. So tell us about that one. So in partnership with another wonderful company called L&M and a community development organization called Akasha Network, we were about to open an amazing project in uh, East Harlem, New York, called Sendero Verde. It will be the largest passive house project in the Americas. Passive house is a German standard that uh, about super insulation. That uh, the buildings are super insulated. They have triple glazed windows. There are very little air infiltration, and because of that, platinum lead is the, so 2018 or something. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, this is way beyond that. And uh, um, uh, they say if the power goes out, the buildings in the middle of winter, the buildings won't get colder than you know the low 60s and um, but it's very, very energy efficient. And that's one of the things we have to do. We have to not only, uh, you know, have cleaner sources of energy, but we can use a lot less of it. And it's interesting to me that in this time of, you know, the Ukrainian crisis in which we're all trying to use, not use Russian oil and, and fossil fuels, that uh, we haven't, as the, the American government has put on the table, you know, with we could easily be 10% more energy efficient across the board. And if we were, we would need a whole lot less fossil fuels. And just to close the circle, that Sendero Verde um, uh, de- development is also uh, affordable, or this is only for for the elite affluent crowd? No. So it's super affordable. It actually has seven tiers of affordability, ranging from formerly homeless to middle income. And it has, on the community of opportunity side, it has a 60,000 square foot charter school with Harlem Children's Zone, one of the best charter school operators in the country. Um, uh, so, and all these things serve both our residents and the neighborhood. Akasha Networks building a community art center. We have a partnership with an incredible community-based organization called um, Union Settlement House, which is providing senior uh, programs and senior uh, food programs, social service programs, programs, after-school programs for kids, teenage programs, all that. So it's all, and then we have this four community gardens with local community groups and this amazing uh, pathway that runs through the whole project that uh, forms a public plaza that has things like a science garden in it. And uh, so it's a, it's a, it will absolutely be a community of opportunity. I th- the listeners can't actually see your face as I can, but you're smiling yeah. broadly. So you're excited about this one. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So now what about the investors? Are they as excited as, as you? You've raised, I think, is it f- f- five funds you, you, you were saying? So um, what's different now from in the old days? Are, is there greater investor receptivity to the kinds of projects and messages you're you're so, yeah. So first of all, our 15-year track record is that we have uh, achieved a 14.7% IRR net to our investors, and um, we've distributed over a 6% annual yield. And so from these are investors, too. They're, so uh, so our investment returns, considering that these are very low risk and very high impact investments, have really been fantastic. And so our investors are very happy with this. And then we have been leaders actually in the reporting on our environmental and social returns. And uh, can, and we're just getting better and better. The world is getting better and better at it, and we're getting better and better at it. And does that only attract impact investors, or does that attract institutional investors of all stripes? So we have our investor mix is about a third institutional investors, pension funds, but they have an impact orientation. So 
for example, we have several pension funds that are hospital pension funds who are very interested in our health outcomes and health work. About a third are foundations. Uh, we were the Ford Foundation's first impact investment and many other foundations, uh, endowments and uh, some university endowments, and then about a third high net worth individuals. And I would say that every one of our investors is interested in our impact. And so I, it's, I just got off an investor call before joining you. I really view that we built an incredible community of investors. Um, and uh, in a way, we're all in this together. A agents of impact, we, we, we like to say. You said you had also just come back from, from Europe and that found that they're interested in social uh, impact housing in the U.S., Yes. So um, there's been an increased interest in Europeans investing, particularly the pension funds in America, because the returns are better here than they are in Europe. Uh, when I last was there pre-COVID, uh, there's a lot of interest in ESG and an impact, but I would call it interest. And there was some alloc asset allocation towards it. I think a couple of things happened. Um, the Paris Accords, uh, in, in, when Paris happened, uh, countries made a commitment to um, climate, but they didn't really do very much about it. And when COP26 happened, uh, there was a lot of pressure on investors and lenders, banks, to make similar commitments. And they did. And they are taking, unlike the countries, they're actually taking it really seriously. So what we encountered on this most recent trip were investors that have a serious understanding of the different elements of ESG and a um, and, and understanding that there's a lot of greenwashing going on, a search for truly authentic uh, investment managers, which we certainly are, since it was part of our founding DNA, and a search for serious measurement of impact. And um, also in Europe now, uh, all companies have to report on their climate impacts uh, and the impact of climate on their operations. And in 2023, they're going to be required to start reporting on their biodiversity impacts. Uh, we're seeing the SEC in the United States has now uh, just put out draft rules requiring um, public companies to report on their climate impacts and the climate risks that are based on the company. And so I'm actually seeing the investing world as probably leading the, the government world when it comes to climate solutions and social solutions. And this, I actually think, is really exciting. It's a chance for this community that you've helped create, that we're all part of, um, collectively to have a really significant role in making the world a better place. Well, that is um, uh, ho hopeful in a, in a world that, that needs, needs that hope. Give us the final word on kind of what's next, Jonathan. So what's next is we are continuing to invest our... Um, this affordable housing preservation fund. You know, the difference between fund one and fund five is we've had more money. Uh, as I said, the technology has gotten better. The systems, the support, external support, the, um, you know, things like telemedicine didn't exist when we did fund one. So I don't see a radical change in what we're doing, just a continuous expansion. As we raise more money, we can be, we, we can have larger impact, expansion, continual deepening of our work and a continual growth in the investor pool because we're seeing more and more people become aligned with these ideas. Well, thank you so much, Jonathan, for the for the tour of, of, of not only affordable, but also green and sustainable housing. And um, we've been watching you for years and we uh, will watch you for years to come. So thanks for joining the Agents of Impact podcast. Thank you for having me. 
That's going to do it for this Agents of Impact podcast. You can read more about Jonathan Rose and the Rose Companies and many other Agents of Impact at impactalpha.com. Big thanks to Jonathan, to our producer Isaac Silk, and to the whole team at Impact Alpha Investment News for a Sustainable Edge. I'm David Bank, Editor and CEO, and I look forward to seeing you again soon.